Welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Andy Zoll. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and IEN.com, and we have lots of experience covering the manufacturing industry. So every week we cover the five biggest stories that uh, have performed well on our websites and just talk about the implications of those stories on the industry widespread. So make sure that you like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. And finally, to email the podcast, uh, reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or Andy at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. So before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, Oil Eater. Oil eater cleaners and heavy-duty degreasers were specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used by industries throughout the world. The company's ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used with parts washers, shop floors, equipment, and more. Click the link below for a free sample or visit in.com slash oil eater. All right, guys. How are we doing today? I'm good. Good job yeah. on the intro. Thanks. This is my first time. Uh, David's out. And I am drunk on power. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, how are you doing? Good. The pre-show was a bit brutal. Definitely more expectations laid out, but we're all here, ready to go because we're afraid not to be. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, let's start there. Uh, (laughs) Kicking off with the fifth most popular story on our website this week, Airbus to create new airplane for whale planes. That's whale, W-H-A-L-E. For years, Airbus has used massive planes internally to ferry large aircraft components across the globe. The Airbus Beluga has the widest interior cross-section of any aircraft in the world, capable of handling cargo up to 22 feet high and more than 23 feet wide. Airbus even has an extra-large version. Poised to take advantage of supply chain challenges, Airbus has recently announced a new subsidiary that will serve as a contract cargo service using the Beluga planes. The whales will be upgraded with top-of-the-line navigation and an automated onboard cargo loader that will be able to move up to 20 tons. Airbus said the service would likely appeal to other aerospace and defense firms, as well as engine and machinery manufacturers, vehicle makers, the energy sector, and even distributors of supplies for humanitarian missions. Industry observers, meanwhile, noted that the change follows a downturn in larger passenger jets, including Airbus's own A380 Super Jumbo. Jeff, what do you think about Airbus's strategic shift here? I think it's a good move. It's also interesting to talk about an aerospace story where we're not talking about hypersonic speeds, autonomous operation. Um, So this this is an interesting topic, and it does seem to make sense. I mean, we've talked about how the airlines are struggling. Um, I think I saw something they're scheduled to lose over $50 billion in 2021. And they're hoping 2022 is a little better where they're only going to lose about $12 billion this oh, year. Nice. So mm-hmm. if they're not making money off of passenger travel, it's probably, and, and obviously the airlines, if they're not making money there, they're not going to have money to invest in new planes or at least promise to buy planes down the road. So it makes a lot of sense for Airbus from a strategic perspective to look into something different. These planes are, if you haven't seen the images of them, they are extremely unique looking. With And I, it's always something, too. You don't really get a feel for the size of some of this equipment until there's something to give it scale. Like the photo that we had is when they're putting a helicopter into the front of it. Mm-hmm. It's a massive, huge helicopter, and it's it's dwarfed by the size <laughs> of this, this incredible, this Beluga XL um, aircraft. So 
interesting in that perspective makes sense for for Airbus. What's also interesting is when you do look at the size of this plane, it's not even close to being the largest cargo plane that's even out there. Mm -hmm. The Beluga comes in, it can hold about 111,000 pounds of cargo. That puts it seventh on the list. Wow. So there are some huge cargo Mm -hmm. planes out there. Cargo being the one area that is actually projected to make money and has made money even during this whole pandemic. So people can charge more for it. Obviously, the Beluga is in a unique um, space in terms of the size of items that it can hold. But in terms of total cargo, again, with that one being seventh, any idea what the number one largest cargo hauling plane might be able to hold? Just in terms of cargo. So Super Beluga, the Beluga XL that we're talking about here is seventh mm-hmm. at 111,000 pounds. What I bet you you're going to tell one? us if we don't if we don't get it right. <clears throat> you right? have to guess. Oh. Two, Just kidding. Oh, I guess anyway. One hundred and twelve thousand. <laughs> it's without going over, right? It's actually kind of an interesting story because the largest cargo hauling plane ever built is the Antonov An two twenty five Mira, built by built in Russia, hauls five hundred fifty thousand pounds what? of cargo. You're making that up. That's insane. Guess how many of these planes that were actually built? Hmm. One. Hmm. They only made one of them, used it. They were going to build another one. Soviet Union kind of fell apart, had some issues there. There is reportedly a second one of these planes somewhere in the Ukraine, kind of like the uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark type oh, warehouse, really? just you know, somewhere. Just, just sitting out there someplace. So for anybody who wants to put together a good like conspiracy spy novel, there you go. You know, it's the, this, the missing Antonov Mira uh, 500,000 pound cargo plane. Seems like that'd be a hard thing to hide. Yeah. You would think. You would think. Someone's just using it for like a storage <clears throat> unit. Does yeah. it say what that uh, what they were hauling with that? Uh, um, well, it was it initially was for a lot of military applications, hauling stuff all over the place that they probably don't want to admit where it was going to. But that was the initial application. But then over time, they did use it for commercial purposes as well. So like if this is going to transport one helicopter, this would transport many helicopters, save Tanks, on fuel. All that good stuff. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. But this one, the Beluga is kind of cool too when they show it. So stuff going in, it opens right like where the mouth would be. Mm-hmm. All these other planes, these huge ones, it goes in the back, like the tail fin kind of pops off and mm-hmm. load it that way. So interesting engineering. Is that just like a bit because it looks like a whale? They painted it to look like a whale? I think so. Okay. I mean, you, I I mean right that. where they put yeah. the, the yeah. windows and stuff, it yeah. looks like it's the mouth. That's cute. That's good. Yeah, I it's think. adorable engineering. <laughs> it is a cute plane. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> it looks more like a porpoise to me. <laughs> uh <laughs> Andy, what do you think about the Beluga? It sounds like it, it maybe couldn't come at a better time. Um, yeah, we had uh, we had talked. I don't know about on this podcast, but just in the industry in general, late last year about how there were basically no cargo planes out there. Mm-hmm. Everything was spoken for months in advance of the the holiday shipping season in particular. So um, to get in uh, with a significant uh, cargo load like this could be very lucrative for them. Um, I just completely lost my train of thought. I had it. I had something else, and I just absolutely really good. Too. I, yeah, that's see. I it can say really it was good. really good because I completely <laughs> lost it. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah. Um, no, the uh, as as far as the uh, the helicopter, they officially kicked off this service in December with the helicopter, and all they had to do was, uh, I believe, fold the rotors down, and yeah. it just fit. Wow. Lickety split, and they mm-hmm. sent it from. Now they had to refuel a bunch of times, but they sent it from France to Japan. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they're looking at this too, potentially, even if the airport, because some airports can't even handle the size of this plane, 
But if there are some planes who are sort of like stranded on the runway, need bigger engines, parts, replacements, whatever, that's another application potentially for this Beluga to be able to sort of be a uh, service vehicle of sorts. You mentioned uh, briefly that automated cargo loader that's specifically for airports that can't handle this or they don't have the facilities right now to handle that. Certainly you have to have the space for it, but if you don't have the equipment, uh, they hope to uh, resolve it with that technology when it comes out. Yeah, I I think that was, for me, one of the most compelling points about this is because you touched on this earlier, Jeff, but we've seen a lot of development in Arrow that's been hypersonic, supersonic stuff that's like a little bit more long game. Uh, The business case in the near term is a little bit fuzzy at this point. Um, Seeing some of these developments from a technology standpoint that really address, um, you know, these airports that are, are, you know, incapable of handling these planes at this time. Finding an application for this that's right here, right now, was a little refreshing, I have to say. It just seemed like money well spent for something that's yeah. actually going to be used right away, you know? A positive supply chain uh, story. Maybe. I, uh, largely a positive story. They yeah. had said that this had nothing to do with them uh, discontinuing their old, their larger airplanes, um, but I'm not sure how true that is. If Are you, no, this is a positive story. Andy. Oh, certainly. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah. Find a conspiracy. Yeah. No, that was this your other is, point before. It's excellent. Yeah. We'll just yeah. edit that. Well done. Yeah. yeah. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> fix it in post. All right. Let's move on to our fourth most popular story of the week, which is SpaceX rocket part on crash course with the moon. <laughs> just another light. Okay. Uh, <laughs> another just light throwaway story about the moon. Uh, reports say that a piece of a SpaceX rocket is on a collision course with the moon, but astronomers say it's probably nothing to worry about. SpaceX is well probably. known. Pro- probably. Yeah. Should be fine. It's going to happen on March 4th, so just, I don't know. Don't look up. Yeah. <laughs> Hide under your desk. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, SpaceX is well known for recycling its rocket boosters, but on a mission seven years ago, one booster spent too much fuel on its launch, rendering it incapable of being returned to Earth for reuse. Instead, it's been basically adrift in space ever since. And scientists recently discovered that the 3.6 ton chunk of space junk is heading straight towards the moon. Since the moon doesn't have a similar fiery atmosphere to Earth, the booster is expected to actually strike its surface. It's not going to burn up on the way there. Luckily, the result will be, in the words of one Harvard astronomer, just another hole in the green cheese. Space enthusiasts seem to be hoping that the incidental impact of the SpaceX booster might help solve some more moon mysteries. So, Andy, from your typical um, skeptical viewpoint, do we buy that this is the first accidental moon hit? It's, I, I mean, I don't see any motivation for them to lie about how much space junk is hitting the moon. Other you don't? Than, uh, I mean. Everyone's motivated if to they're lie. Saying this, <laughs> if they're saying this isn't a big deal and this is this huge piece of SpaceX gear, what would be the harm in, I mean, so the United States Surve- Space Surveillance Service tracks more than 15,000 pieces of debris larger than four inches. So okay. that's, it's a little surprising that. You know, something the size of like a grapefruit wouldn't have like spun off and hit the moon just uh, on the off chance, even though space is infinite and whatever. It does seem um, like that maybe would yes. have happened by now. But um, actually, when you think about it that way, that mm-hmm. uh, you're just kind of it's in orbit and it spins off. Mm-hmm. You'd pretty much have to get it. What one out of a million times in order to actually hit the moon instead of just flying off into the great unknown. I guess. Yeah. I don't know what the mathematical odds are. Certainly. But, yeah. I also do not know. Come prepared. Give me three minutes in a calculator. No. <laughs> 
Um, no, it's uh, that that everyone's kind of downplaying this and suggesting that there could be some positive aspects to it leads me to believe that maybe this is the first time and that they wouldn't have right. as many mysteries to solve if it had happened before. Fair enough. Jeff, do you feel like this is a movie plot or is this really happening? <laughs> I think this has been numerous movie plots. Isn't there one now with Haley Berry where something weird happens with the moon? I don't know. There's, I didn't quite catch all of that. Yeah, one, the the it's some some trailers you kind of can uh, hash out the plot just from that, yeah. and that that wasn't one of them for yeah, me. I could not could not follow that. Anyway, yeah. I think there's also a Transformers movie about something weird going on on the moon. So this is definitely some sort of sci-fi um, craziness going on here. Mm-hmm. But the one thing is, like you said, with the environment, or excuse me, the atmosphere of the moon. It shouldn't be like a huge deal in mm-hmm. doing some research. Everybody's like, it's going to be a big hit. This is a three and a half ton piece of metal right. that's traveling like 5,700 miles an hour. So when it hits, it's going to be a big dust storm that stirs up, but shouldn't be anything crazy. I think they've found also from other impacts, they, they talked about a bigger one. I think it was like eight or nine years ago. It's about a 50 pound piece of equipment or a boulder or something like that that did strike it. And they could actually see it on the cameras. It actually kind of lit up a little bit. So this being significantly larger, mm-hmm. I mean, it should be a pretty cool photo, but I, I don't think we have anything to worry about. And I base that on all my many, many years mm-hmm. of study and research and right. understanding of astronomy and physics and, and all of that. That's right. So, yeah. Which I have none of. Consulting NASA and that sort of thing. <laughs> they talk to me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same here. It's like no matter how many times the actual space experts are like, this is not a big deal. I'm like, but is it, though? Because they just seem so cavalier with their statements about like, oh, like some of them are saying like we're rooting for an impact because they want to see, like we said, you know, like they want to see if they can learn anything from that impact. I mean, they've sh- like shot missiles at the moon before. They know that yeah. it can be done. But well, And how has Elon Musk not jumped all over this opportunity? Like something, I mean, he wants to colonize everything. So isn't he like, hey, you know, it's a big piece of metal up there. Maybe we can build something with that thing when it lands. Maybe, you but I, I also kind of feel like if he draws attention to it, like does that encourage more people Earthside to say we should be holding them more accountable for what is going? I mean, because like, oh, yeah, this is waste. Right. It's waste. And, you know, that was my first thought. And actually, uh, The Verge um, kind of beat me to the punch on this thought. But um, they ran a report recently saying that this incident should serve as a good reminder to clean up our deep space junk. And I have to agree. I mean, they they quoted Bill Gray, who is an astronomer and asteroid tracker running Project Pluto. And he said, ideally, junk of this sort would be disposed of a little bit more intelligently. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, I mean... You know, we continue to traffic space with satellites, with science research, with like the worst kind of it, which is like rich people's leisure activities, whatever that is. But I kind of bristle at the idea that like whoever is doing this can just abandon whatever they want in space and there's no recourse for that or it doesn't seem like it. Because this expert, Bill Gray, he even said that some of the heavier objects that are left at super high orbit, they lose track of them, first of all. But they can also actually come crashing down to Earth because their orbits are elongated because they're so far out that when they descend, their descents are faster and more vertical. So there's not as much time to prepare for them, A. B, they're more likely um, to have pieces that could actually survive that intense atmosphere uh, as Hmm. they come hurtling towards Earth. So it's rare, obviously. I'm not trying to be like, a conspiracy theor- theorist or like doomsday prepper about this. I'm not going to change anything about my day to day, but 
but like, you know, it could happen. So I, I feel like maybe there's some, some best practices that we could be discussing around like what to do, like, like maybe create some sort of a large garbage can that we could put some, I don't know. I don't know a what the answer is. Space garbage. Like can. a big dumpster. Well, that, we were talking about like the drone, like the guns for shooting up the nets for drones. That's been one of the things I've been thinking about trying to do with all this space junk. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about, they, you're saying, oh, they they measure stuff or they um, keep track of stuff that's over four feet. Four so inches. Four inches. Four inches. Yep. I mean, geez, three and a half tons. You'd think this would definitely be one that they, mm-hmm. they probably had that and, one. Yeah. They probably had that on their uh, radar. Circled a little bit, highlighted maybe. Mm-hmm. So. And they believe that there's a lot, lot, lot of that smaller stuff that they don't track. Yeah. And it's not like this problem is going away either. And if so, so much of it burns up in the atmosphere, couldn't you just like nudge it? Like try to get it to come you crashing wanna, down? You want to send it towards Earth? Is that your plan? Well, the smaller stuff, why not? I mean, if it's going to burn up in the atmosphere. Oh, I thought you meant this. Uh, this big one? Yeah. Well, there like, is that spot in the ocean, right? Don't put Jeff in charge. <laughs> Are you kidding? I just qualified with all of my extensive <laughs> knowledge of all of these things. <laughs> There is that spot in the ocean, though, where they do send it down. Like when the space station comes down, it's that space graveyard. I think it's in the uh, Indian Ocean. Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I don't think that people like love again, that, though. Yeah, maybe yeah. we don't want to throw more stuff yeah. in the ocean. That's probably a good call, too. Yeah. All right, moving on. Our third most popular story of the week. Uh, worker claims Amy's Kitchen line speed too fast for bathroom breaks. Amy's Kitchen is a family-owned organic and vegetarian frozen foods company with a history of focusing on social and environmental justice. But a recent formal complaint filed with Cal OSHA by factory worker Cecilia Luna Ojeda casts a a harsh light on the current environment for Amy's workers. The complaint also described locked fire exits, worn out floor mats, and a lack of proper training for tasks like heavy lifting and operating heavy machinery. And it also says workers experience hostility when they bring up safety concerns. The complaint adds that workers are shamed or asked to provide a doctor's note if they request a break from the line to use the bathroom, though Amy's has denied all of these allegations. Amy's has acknowledged the company is making more meals than ever before. And the complainant, contends that that translates to 25,000 plates of food during an eight and a half hour shift on each assembly line. Since these reports have emerged, Amy's co-founder, Andy Berliner, vows the company will take action. Andy, do you think that the situation speaks to a larger issue in the food industry? Uh, It certainly seems that way, but this company in particular um, seemed to be experiencing um, some strong growth even before the pandemic and the pandemic is obviously with a lot of issues we've covered with regard to um, issues in food production. It's obviously made things exponentially worse. Um, there's so much consumer demand and uh, and it's ramping up the pressure on these workers to pretty much an unmanageable level, be it here or any of the other uh, places we've talked about where workers have gone on strike. There have been union squabbles, that sort of thing. Mm hmm. Yeah. Jeff, do you think it's a culture problem with just Amy's or do you think that this is more easily solved than a cultural upheaval (laughs) over there? I mean, yeah, it's probably not easily solved, but there's just there's a real interesting convergence of elements here. First of all, we've talked about this numerous times. Food processing, the margins are tight. Mm -hmm. Okay, super tight. Pennies on the dollar. It's also one of those industries where downtime is just an absolute profit killer. Now, typically, when we talk about downtime, we're talking about machinery and components, but there is a human element of that as well. People stepping away now, you got to be able to step away and use the restroom or take a break if it's medically necessary, but that is also downtime. 
when you combine that sort of operating environment that's already there with the increased demand that Andy was talking about, and in particular, this company, and just to kind of put some perspective on there, I found an interview on um, foodnavigator.com. It is with um, Karen Job. She is the chief customer and consumer officer at Amy's Kitchen. Excuse me. <clears throat> she was quoted as saying last summer, We've had explosive, unprecedented growth. We're talking in the hundreds of millions in terms of growth that was realized, but also hundreds of millions of what could have been. So it's been the year of what could have been, but in 2022, we are poised for significant growth. So you've got a company that's saying, yeah, we realized all this growth, but man, there mm -hmm. was so much demand out there. If we could have capitalized on all that demand, yeah. we could have seen even bigger returns. This company is actually building two factories. One other one in California, one in New York that are set to at least um, the one in California is supposed to come online this year. New York begins construction this year. So they are seeing all this growth. There's increased pressure to get more stuff out the door because there's more opportunity there. So when you combine all of those factors, potentially then with what has to be some weak managerial tactics mm -hmm. here, you're just you've got a, a, a bad situation that was probably very fixable if you had the right tools in place and probably managers who had a better appreciation of what was going on, still wanting to obviously meet those bigger goals and help the company grow and do more, but also realizing the environment that you're working in. And I think what added a lot of credence to these complaints for me is the woman who filed the report actually could have remained anonymous. According to, to mm -hmm. California and OSHA, they do not, they're not under any pressure to identify the person filing the complaint. And she came out and wanted to be identified. She wanted to be a spokesperson for the issues that are going on here. So even if it happened once, locking a fire exit, mm -hmm. I mean, right, not why? allowing people to use the restroom, these are, these are simple things in terms of fixes. It has got to be a culture, and you don't know if it's a culture that permeates throughout the company or a bad manager. Yeah. You know, you hope... In this instance, it's just somebody who doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and you have to wonder, too, like you were talking about this, uh, this scale up that they're undergoing right now, like how much gets glossed over, swept under the rug because people are focused on other things yeah. and maybe training takes a back seat or maybe the executive team is, you know, running 10 different directions like chickens with their heads cut off. And then the basics, you, you kind of lose focus on the basics. I don't know. Well, I think it's very easy, too, in these types of situations where the employees are working so hard for the manager to potentially blow this stuff off is not a big deal. The door was locked one time. Mm -hmm. There was one time I said you couldn't go to the bathroom. Well, it was a big deal. And mm -hmm. it couldn't have been just one time because these folks are filing repeated complaints about this. Mm -hmm. And all of the positive juju that you had going on with all that growth and the fact that during the pandemic people were stocking up on all of your frozen foods – that goes away because it's not just us talking about this. This was picked up by national media, mm -hmm. and it's bringing a ton of negative exposure to a product category when you talk about organic frozen foods that's seeing more and more competition all the time. Exactly. So there's a lot more that Amy's Kitchen needs to think about here mm -hmm. than just one person filing a complaint. For sure. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I think it tracks like kind of, a, you know, there's a larger food industry issue here, which is like the back and forth over line speeds. That the, you know, the, uh, about like what can or should be legally allowed. I mean, the food companies for years have been pushing to like increase uh, line speeds and many workers and unions are arguing that this comes with a cost and it's at the expense of employees who even if they're not facing like some sort of catastrophic industry or sorry, injury, 
Uh, there are ergonomic consequences. Um, in this case, considerations of just human decency. Of what, well, worker morale. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, yeah. They're, if they're hating it, and right now there's a job shortage going on that's not just exclusive to food, but throughout manufacturing, there's other options out there. Well, I agree. And I think that when you look at the productivity gains that could come with that, <laughs> you can't look at it like as a line on a spreadsheet in absentia of anything else. Like from a culture standpoint, from a worker morale standpoint, you're going to lose people. And especially in this this market where workers tend to have the upper hand um, and maybe people are just going to say, no, thanks. I don't want to deal with the stress of it. You know, well, it's interesting, too, because there's been a lot of talk. Amy's Kitchen is a non-union uh, mm-hmm. entity for the workers. So if you want to preserve that and keep that dialogue with what Amy's Kitchen and the, the owners there and the executives feel is a more open line of communication between them and the workforce. You need to resolve this stuff quickly. Yeah, you got to really have it. You got to put your money where your mouth is because they said that they don't want to unionize because they want to have more direct communication with the workers themselves, not a union. That's Um, always the line, though, isn't it? Well, it is. But, you know, in this case, I think it's clear, like, if if there's a lack of there's a a communication breakdown, right? Clearly, yeah. That's evidenced. When we've seen how well that's played out with Kellogg's and Frito-Lay and some other folks, Mm -hmm. you want to delay that and actually realize all these gains for those new factories? Take care of your people. Yeah. Exactly. That's a, a, a dangerous uh, wormhole to go down to start thinking about what could have been in pretty much any aspect, yeah. let alone, you know, if you're making hundreds of millions of dollars, be like, <laughs> well, oh, we could have made hundreds of millions. So I get margins are tight, but also yeah. and to put it out there, there are like limits that, to this. Yes. To put it out there. And then you've got these people who've been busting their butts mm-hmm. for the last 18 months and they read that and they're going, really? <laughs> yeah. Not doing enough. I mean, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Our number two story this week, illegal coal mine collapses in eastern India and kills at least five. An abandoned coal mine in eastern India collapsed during illegal digging, killing at least five people. The mine was dumped by authorities 15 years ago, but people still use it to extract coal in hazardous conditions, placing the resources in boxes that are hoisted to the surface with pulleys. Accidents during illegal mining are frequent, though the livelihoods of those who do such mining depend on the illegal sale of coal. Last year, six miners died after being trapped in an abandoned coal mine, and in 2018, 15 were killed inside another such mine in India. Andy, coal has been the target of a lot of criticism in recent years. Is this just one more reason to transition away from this, do you think? Well, certainly, if if you could transition your energy systems away from coal, then these people uh, who are just trying to survive... Um, they wouldn't have a market to do this extremely dangerous work. Mm-hmm. Now, where that leaves them as far as economic opportunities, um, it's hard to say. I can't say here. I, I don't know what to tell you, but um, it's it shows uh, that it shows one how prevalent coal still is, and it shows how how desperate um, some of these these places are to make a living for themselves yeah. and their families. That they would subject themselves to these what's what's the term here? rat hole mines i mean come on like imagine the desperation um just to just to provide for yourself and your family so um i think maybe the bigger issue here is more uh providing for a better certainly a legal opportunity for these people to make money but just in general a way for these people to survive without putting their lives in danger. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeff, obviously, like in America, the coal industry is a shadow of its former self, right? Mm -hmm. But um, as Andy mentioned, it's still (coughs) highly prevalent in many other uh, emerging and brick nations. So 
Like, how do you think poor nations sort of disproportionately get impacted by the negative effects of this type of operation? Yeah, India is sort of, it's just such a weird convergence in terms of from a societal and industrial perspectives. It, on one hand, you've got people working in what you described as rat hole illegal coal mines. And this is, depending on the number you look at, between the fifth and seventh largest economy in the world. Okay. This is an economy that's bigger than Canada, Brazil, Italy. It's right there with the UK and France in terms of output and GDP. And yet they've got individuals who, in order to make money or heat their homes or cook food, are digging into these illegal mines. That's why the first reason that people are doing this is because they have to. Mm -hmm. There's a benefit to it. India, again, depending on what you look at, something like the third worst air quality in the world. Some people put them as the second most polluted country in the world. And a lot of that comes from the way that they create energy. Okay. There's still one of their leading sources of energy is burning biomass. Mm -hmm. They're burning wood. They're burning dead crops. They're burning garbage and manure. I mean, when you're doing that, coal looks pretty good. Okay, so there's either a market for them to use it in their homes and for cooking, heating, all of those types of things or to sell it. The electrical grid in India is real big surprise here, unreliable at best. Mm -hmm. So there's a market for the coal that they're pulling out of there. What India needs more than anything else is infrastructure. Now, we talk about infrastructure here in the U.S. There's a debate over the trillions of dollars we want to spend on it. Well, one of the things that should also be considered when looking at lower cost manufacturing locations like India and throughout Asia is these local jurisdictions need to also talk about these companies helping create an infrastructure that helps them get rid of waste because that's a long-term impact. More than the immediate economic positive elements of jobs and money coming into the area, you need to build roads. You Mm -hmm. need to build water treatment. You need to build sewage. More people in India have smartphones than toilets. This is the fifth largest economy in the world, okay? There's something askew here. And there's a responsibility that stems from from the corporations that are leveraging that low-cost manufacturing option as well as the local government here. There's money there. There's resources there. This is what happens when those resources aren't properly utilized. Yeah, Yeah, and it's definitely true that uh, depending on where you are, if you don't have access to job opportunities that – You know, this happens in lots of countries where people are illegally mining or, you know, involved in trades for minerals. And it's extremely dangerous, but it is people's only option. And, you know, if you look at even like the above board coal mining industry in the U.S., um, we've seen worker deaths fall from a peak high of 2,821 in the year 1910 to now in 2020, five deaths attributed to coal mining. And you see a lot of chatter around the coal industry, like lobbying and trying to remain relevant. And the fact of the matter is there is a safety concern as well. Um, it's not just environmental. Um, obviously, this vast reduction in coal deaths, I think, is attributable to multiple things, right? Technology improvements, operating procedures, regulations, but also, of course, like the reduction in coal mining in the industry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just that's well, just part of it. other cleaner energy sources. Yeah, exactly. So um so it's tough to see some of these um, these people struggle through trying to deal with the, this resource that, you know, bites back, unfortunately. It underscores how 
the the rules are different when your survival is at stake and you know mm-hmm, these exactly. in, in regard not even in coal and pretty much any black market you want to name mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. all right uh moving on to our number one story of the week how brad pitt's green housing dream for hurricane katrina survivors turned into a nightmare that's a mouthful Brad Pitt's Make It Right Foundation built 109 eye-catching and affordable homes in New Orleans for a community where many people were displaced by Hurricane Katrina's damage. Now this housing development is reportedly in disarray. The vast majority of the recently constructed homes are riddled with construction-related problems that have led to mold, termites, rotting wood, flooding, and other woes. Make It Right, despite what its name might suggest, has not resolved these issues and has stopped assisting residents, and it is now apparently defunct. The group spent over $26 million to build these houses and sold them for less than they were worth in order to ensure that they were affordable for residents. Although some of these structures are not yet a decade old, data shows that only six remain in reasonably good shape. That's six of 109 A judge ruled in 2019 that Brad Pitt would remain a defendant in related lawsuits because of his role as Make It Right's founder and chief fundraiser. Despite their experiences, some residents said that they still believe Make It Right's founder had good intentions. I don't blame Brad Pitt, said one resident. He had a vision to build low-income houses and get people back in the lower ninth ward. Jeff, whose fault is this? And does it matter? Um, It's the people who built the house's fault. Without a doubt. If you're going to build a house, you got to know what you're doing. Okay. Those people are putting their trust in you. They did pay for these houses. Um, it was at a lower rate. And it was, in my mind, when I first saw this, it reminded me, and I think I've used this analogy before actually on the podcast. I can remember in basic training, being on a rifle range, saw the drill sergeant off in the distance, just said, hold his hands, hold up one finger. That means he needed one individual to come over there, put squared away my stuff, hustled over to the drill sergeant, got there, said, drill sergeant, what do you need? He said, I need you to go out. There's some privates on the firing line. Use your canteens because they're dry. My canteens were empty. So his response was excellent initiative, poor execution. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't have what I needed to accomplish that mission. I was there. I was ready to go. Didn't have the right stuff. Same situation here. Turns out, guys, building houses is hard. Hmm. Okay? We've learned that with cars and trucks. Houses are also difficult, especially if you want to take a new sort of experimental approach and using a lot of these green materials more sustainable approaches to construction, they need to be proven. They need to be validated. How long have we been talking about 3D printed houses? Great option. Makes all the sense in the world from a material conservation perspective. Makes all the sense in the world from a cost effectiveness perspective. But we've seen a number of these built as prototypes because they wanted to make sure things are going to work over time. Mm -hmm. This was rushed into place with the best of possible intentions but those intentions mean nothing now because all of these people are displaced. And what you've got is basically just a bunch of shacks that aren't worth the materials they were made out of. Mm-hmm. All right, Andy, are you mad at Brad? Uh, not, <laughs> not at Brad. I'm going to try not to climb onto my soapbox oh, too hard. Get, here. Up, get, get, yeah. I, get up there. I, I'm, I'm you, yeah, certainly me me and Brad have something in common that we do not have the answer to the affordable housing crisis <laughs> in this country. Um, Didn't figure but I it would, out, huh? I would suggest that if you're going to uh, take p- other people's money, build uh, build buildings that are, notwithstanding their shoddy quality, just build buildings, say they worked, and then sell them for less than what they cost, then 
maybe the government should be involved because then at least someone somewhere is accountable. Here, no one is accountable mm-hmm. at yeah. all. It, I mean, sounds like they know, disappeared, right? Well, yes, the exactly. Though, if you remember, the leadership down in New Orleans at that time was horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were chastised for everything that they did wrong because they did nothing right, and this kind of adds on. No, no of, one's going to tout the the luxuries of government sub you know public housing. That's not you know any anything that. Uh, anyone would confuse with, you know, luxury or anything like that. But I mean, you have to have someone to go to at some level when there are these kinds of problems. And another thing, um, you look at this list of problems that there's only six of these still viable out of Mm -hmm. 109. And you look at the list of problems and you think it might be related to just, just the climate, if nothing else, but they've, they've built buildings in Newark and Kansas city and those Montana, I think. And those also had problems. So there's nobody here who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, oh, so, man. well, exactly. Like a really uh, serious lack of any checks and balances, because obviously I think we can all agree that like, it's very unlikely that Brad Pitt had bad intentions here. If anything, it would be terrible for his brand yeah. <laughs> to like do this. And then, you know what I mean? It just it looks is. so bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, he lives in New Orleans or he did like I think that um, probably his heart was in the right place. But again, as we've covered, if you are not in the construction industry, you might not be the right person to be like the on the board of this. You know what I mean? Like just just wanting to do this is one thing. If you can't step in and recognize that this stuff is not up to snuff then maybe you're not the right person to be doing it. And obviously somebody dropped the ball on the construction side here and there was no one there that figured it out in time. It's easy to rag on, on bureaucracy and government red tape and all Mm -hmm. that as far as public housing or anything else. But those things exist for a reason. It's to prevent this sort of thing from happening. It's not a hundred percent of the time, but that's why it's there. It's the one time I'll agree with you with a little bit more, but having a little bit more governor, government oversight. There it is. It's time to regulate. One time. It's One time. time to regulate. That's, That's it. <laughs> it's time to regulate bad Brad Pitt. That's a quote. Him in. A quote. I'm going to attribute to you directly. <laughs> but I don't sound like that. <laughs> I don't think that would pass for me. If we um, had a story, by the way, with Brad Pitt in the headline every day, I could retire early. <laughs> People love reading that stuff. Um, all right. We're going to move on to our In Case You Missed It today. Uh, these are the stories that uh, we ran on our websites this week that we feel maybe didn't get enough play, and we want to talk about them a little bit more. So uh, I'll start with you today. Ooh, I don't know. Ooh. Who's it going to be? Yeah, the power. Again, the power. I don't, I, I, I can't handle it. Um, all right, Andy, uh, what was your In Case You Missed It? Um, mine is... Uh, We'll go back to last year. Um, Michigan's governor announced that the state planned to build the first electric vehicle charging road in the country. Um, they awarded a contract to uh, this company from Israel. And then uh, this week it was announced where this road was going to be. So and that it would uh, it in- intended to be in place by next year. So uh, by the end of 2023, uh, we can all get in our Teslas and take a road trip to Detroit and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully drive down this little thoroughfare and it'll uh, charge your battery a little bit. That's insane. It's uh, this is, this is the first one in this country, but this uh, country is or country company is called uh, Electrion. Um, they've built roadways in Israel uh, where it's headquartered, Sweden, Italy, and Germany. Um, Europe, there's uh, 
Um, I know there was a, a chargeable, I think, a bike lane in the Netherlands or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so this is not a world first, but it's uh, a big deal that it's happening for the first time in this country. Um, it's uh, in the same corridor where Ford is restoring an old uh, train station where it wants to develop self-driving vehicles. Mm-hmm. So that's another angle here uh, as far as electric and uh, autonomous vehicles um, and uh, how it works just from a very 10,000 foot uh, perspective is just basically coils underneath the roadway. Um, and then there's a power receiver unit on the car and it just kind of uh, wirelessly, I suppose mm-hmm. would have to be charges yeah. your car as you drive down the, this road in Detroit. That's amazing. Next so year. Who pays for the juice? Just like part that's an of- excellent question. I'm not prepared to answer at this moment. Oh, sorry. I didn't no, mean to, no, sorry. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. Maybe that's rhetorical. I don't know. I <laughs> no. You guys uh, feel free to to uh, expound on this a little more. I'll dig around for yeah, that. Yeah, I'm just curious because um, you know, I mean, a free charge that's yeah. great and all, but that just some feels like I'm missing something. <laughs> it, might, it might just. I mean, if the maybe it's a tollway. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe the city just eats it and considers it a sunk cost as far as keeping, uh, keeping emissions, uh, Detroit has had to yeah. eat a lot. Yeah. That's like, yeah. I know it doesn't say anything in the article, but do you know how long of a stretch of road this would be? Couldn't tell you. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cool technology. And it is, in, what's reassuring is that it's been done in other countries. This isn't like a pilot program. I would think just the very nature of it would, the government must be picking it up in some way, shape or form mm-hmm. in terms of the electricity being generated. But um, yeah, cool technology. Yeah. It's not unheard of to, I mean, there's places where you can charge your car for free and it, you know, yeah. I, you wonder like as this stuff starts to scale, if that changes, it's very, it's so niche right now mm-hmm. that it's probably not a huge concern, but at some point, you know, when people have all these forecasts of when they want to be all electric, that sort of thing, at some point in these next decades, you're going to have to figure that problem out. Yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, that's future. Yeah. We'll worry about Michigan's that later. Problem. Cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> Kick it down the Kick that can down the road. Mm-hmm. Down right. the electric tollway. <laughs> down the electric tollway. <laughs> Charge it at the same time. Put a rooster on it, as they say. Uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? Well, Anna, it's interesting how you were saying you were drunk with power. I am. Because my in still case am. you missed it, still am. Okay. Seeing as how you're, are, you are drunk with power, um, the folks in Massachusetts, not so much. Okay. <laughs> so we um, we have a sister publication called Cannabis Equipment News talking about all the things that are going on there in terms of developing cannabis as a, a legal product in a lot of states, a mm-hmm. lot of the manufacturing and processing that's going on around those different types of products. And CEN ran an interesting story talking about how Massachusetts is actually seeing more tax revenue from cannabis related products than alcohol. Interesting. Now, I've drank with some guys in Boston before, so this hit home. I mean, those guys, it's <laughs> no joke. I mean, yeah, we in Wisconsin thinks we can hand, we can, you know, handle ourselves at the bar. Boys in Boston and Massachusetts, not far behind. So it was interesting. Um, that aside, just the fact that they were looking at basically the, the tax revenues, again, were about $23 million more for cannabis as opposed to alcohol. Holy cow. And I think that's just an interesting trend right now to see in a, it's not a huge state, obviously, Massachusetts, but from a population perspective, but obviously some big geographic or some big metro areas there. And since they have made cannabis legal in 2018, they've seen $2.5 billion 
um, worth of recreational sales. Hmm. So it's just a growing industry for these states that have uh, approved it and made it legal. Um, states are seeing the benefits and it's, it's just growing. If you're somebody who either produces processing equipment, this is definitely a growth market. If you're somebody who's looking at potentially expanding your product offerings, if you're doing food, if you're doing beverages, looking into a cannabis type product might be a good way to expand as well. Interesting. So I, I wonder if the cannabis industry is represented by, you know, like how alcohol has the ATF and um, kind of a lobbying on their behalf to right. uh, like, is cannabis like fall under any of those umbrellas? And if so, like, is anyone lobbying for uh, reducing those taxes. I know like this was one of the ways that people were trying to push this through in a lot of states saying like, look, we can tax this. It'll be a huge generator of revenue. Mm -hmm. At some point, will people try to like skate back a little bit on that and say like, let's try to maybe normalize what that rate is. Where or? that's been a big issue, particularly in California, yeah. is that um, the cannabis is cheaper on the illegal market. So a lot of these companies are saying, hey, we are certainly it's generating a lot of money, mm -hmm. but they're also uh, being taxed too much so they can't compete with the black market sales. Interesting. So the California's industry is they they're talking about a full scale overhaul of how it's how it's taxed and regulated because they're saying they're on the verge of collapse. Um, wow. Man. But that's as incredible. far as as far as these numbers go, um, one that's the Massachusetts numbers is comparing, uh, I believe, the excise taxes. There's also state and local taxes on top of that. So that's um, something else to keep in mind about the overall numbers. And then that's also not the, uh, probably far from the first state where that's happened. Uh, this headline says Illinois collected nearly a hundred million more in marijuana tax revenue than alcohol sales in 2021. So yeah. a lot of that is from, uh, Wisconsin probably too. Well, I think it's just an interesting sort of societal trend as well. I mean, we were talking a little bit with kids. I've got, you know, two in high school, one in college. When I was that age, drinking was what we, you know, we're trying to get away with. And that is less of a, a thing right now. So for, mm -hmm. for the younger generations. Yeah. So. That's probably good, huh? It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my In Case You Missed It this week is about the Mars Wrigley plant on Chicago's west side closing its doors in two years. So according to the Chicago Tribune, the Mars Wrigley plant on the city's west side that was once hailed as the most beautiful candy factory in America will be phased out over the next two years. Citing a company statement, the Tribune says 280 workers will lose their jobs, but Mars Wrigley is encouraging displaced workers to explore opportunities at other locations. As for the site, Mars Wrigley told the news outlet that the company remains committed to the, sale, uh, to the city of Chicago and intends to partner with the surrounding community on a future vision for the site. And the company, it appears, actually plans to donate the factory site for the use of the community. And I chose this story not to be a downer because it's a plant closure story, but because it wasn't actually one of the worst plant closure stories we've covered. Um, one, the workers are being encouraged to explore positions elsewhere within the company who actually happens to have other plants in the Chicago metro area. So it feels a lot less like lip service to me when it's local, right? I mean, you see so many of those plant closure yeah. stories where they're like, join us in yeah, Mississippi yeah. and like pack up your family and sell your house and leave, you know. Like, that's not realistic for a lot of people, whereas this seems like it maybe would be. Uh, secondly, the company is going to find a way to repurpose this site for the benefit of the community. And here's hoping they have not appointed Brad Pitt to the board of that <laughs> effort. <laughs> sorry, Brad. It's, You're not sorry. Uh, Don't apologize. <laughs> you deserved it. I had to. Um, but then third, we actually had um, an executive from another food company in Chicago reach out to us after this story ran. 
to ask if we could connect him with someone from Mars Wrigley because they wanted to see if there were displaced workers that they could find a place for at their facility because they were short on staff. Wow. So overall, it felt like, I don't know, a decent outlook for this kind of situation, which is traditionally, I think, a little bit yeah. more bleak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, ho- you know, all the best for these workers. Hopefully um, things are going to go OK for the people who are, are displaced from this plant. So what it kind of made me think of when I read this is um, the facility, the former mill over here on the east side of Madison, mm-hmm. where now has become just this huge sort of. Outlet for restaurants and, and other retail and stuff like that. Mixed use. Mixed use. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So, you know, if there's an opportunity there to turn this facility into something like that for this community, that could also be a very positive thing. Bring more revenue, more money, more jobs, um, hopefully to offset a little bit of what the, what they're losing with Wrigley. Oh, man. People love to turn old factories into mixed use developments. <laughs> <laughs> we are like the mixed use capital of the world here in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> we love that stuff. Um, shut down some factories so we can use them for luxury apartments. <laughs> that was a joke. Wow. That that one's going to get you. That, that, was, one, that was your quote. That's the David Manti-esque quote. You have <laughs> to use It's going to be used as your job as moderators to, to, to say stuff that's completely out of, context. out of line. Yeah, we, we have to use the sarcastic font with mm-hmm. that, please. Far right wing advocate Anna Wells. Calls for factory yeah. closures. Please, uh, please do not put any more mixed use stuff in this town. We're good. Yeah. We have a We're lot fine. of it. We have tons of it. Yeah. We're fine. Uh, anyway. <laughs> We're fine. Everything's good here. <laughs> yeah. one, one use, please. Yes, one use. only one use. Please manufacture things. Uh, we have enough uh, kitsch. Okay. Uh, before we wrap up with our final thoughts, let's once again thank our sponsor, Oil Eater. Oil eater cleaners and heavy-duty degreasers were specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used by industries throughout the world. The company's ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used with parts washers on shop floors and in equipment and more. Click the link below for a free sample or visit in.com slash oil eater. All right. Final thoughts, Andy. Um, it is once again time for my uh, quadrennial hot take that the Winter Olympics are better than the summer. <laughs> quadrennial. Um, I don't know how hot a take that is, but. Uh, it's a little hot. A little bit. I yeah. Think, yeah. Um, I think people make a bigger deal out of the summer ones, but I like watching the weirder sports in the uh, Winter Olympics more than the weirder ones in the summer. You're, 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 a you're skiing rifle. <laughs> I at luge is fun. You're uh, you're shooting while skiing sports. That's good stuff. What yeah. is that called? Watched some curling last night. Uh, yes. That's the weirdest thing. Yeah. Yeah. But like really like application, like the potential there, like you could see back in the day that that's what you were doing. Sure. Skiing and shooting. I guess. What you had to do in the winter. Yeah. I'm looking like forward it. to ski jumping in particular. That's my favorite. See, all those sports, though, they're entertaining for me for like 10 minutes. Yeah. That's the point of the Olympics, right? Yeah. 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. Check them out. And then <laughs> These people train for yeah. a lifetime. You watch for 10 minutes. Listen. That's what we do. Listen. No, I, I love the Olympics. When it's on, like, I, like three weeks of like always having something to watch. And then when it's over, I kind of miss it. Yeah. Cause you're just like, Oh, now I have to figure it out. It's a oh. nice February pickup when it rolls around. It sure is. Yeah. I'm with you. Meh. <laughs> Jeff, I roll. Not a huge Olympics fan. Yeah, of course you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Take that however whatever, you want. <laughs> Man. No judgment uh, here. Yeah. Speaking of judging Jeff, I'd like to thank um, the listeners who wrote in this week. Oh, brother. Chris, Lindsay, Rick, thank you, who sent some helpful data around the dangers of static electricity at the gas pump. 
to vindicate me after being lambasted by my colleagues on last week's panel. Not you, Andy. Not me, for the record. Yeah. I did. I I went after you. Uh, Well, I'm I'm not going to. apologies. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what to do, Jeff, because no one tells Jeff what to do. But I will say this. I have three daughters and a wife. I'm constantly being told what to do. All right, then I will tell you what to do. Figures. Uh, but it is um, a real risk that you could uh, get an electric uh, shock or take an electric, static electricity and a spark could create a fire if you're getting gas and you're not being careful. So remember to ground yourself. If you want to leave your gloves on, that's fine. But ground yourself. Thanks, Mom. Appreciate that. For, for God's that. sakes, Jeff, ground yourself. <laughs> No, there was like the, um, we did get the one video sent in the MythBusters video. That was, was pretty interesting. It was so good. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. very good. It was it was taking a different approach, but good stuff. Yeah, they did um, debunk the cell phone at the gas pump thing. That's not anything to worry about. But be careful with uh, your static charge. <laughs> I've been forewarned. I will probably ignore it and still wear gloves when I pump the gas. The Petroleum but. Equipment Institute. Uh, Estimates that there were 170 static electricity fires at gas stations from 1992 to 2006. Where were you last week? 2006. Where were you last week, This is an old article. Yeah. 2006? Come on. You're going to- Nothing since then? Uh, Since since then, then I have- I I think uh, you're misrepresenting what Andy is saying. I will will call the Petroleum Equipment Institute, an agency I have never heard of, and I will uh, get back to you on that. How about that? All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, let's go to the uh, audience here. We have a comment. Mary B., who's watching the podcast right now live, says winter Olympics are definitely better than the summer. All right, Andy. People get it. And then uh, Mike Peterson (laughs) says or the skeleton. And I don't know what that means. So skeleton is like one person luge. Oh, okay. So it's an industry term. Danger sledding. We can call it that. <laughs> yeah, you almost watch that like you watch NASCAR just for the crashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are horrible. <laughs> uh, Jeff, your final thought. Final thought is thanks for educating me, Anna, on static electricity. Any time, Jeff. Let that one go. Also, very proud. I've got two teenage daughters on the road now. So if you're living anywhere in the Tri County area, clear the sidewalks. Be careful. Are they getting Pre- their own gas? Tell them about it. <laughs> <laughs> I will make sure that they have both sides of the story. Like Anna says, you got to wear it out. Please. Yeah. Um, also, I had a lot of reader feedback with the trivia question. We actually had probably the most responses ever to a trivia question, hmm. and they were split between two answers. So just to recap, the question was, uh, let me get the right card. Where, how do you store oily rags? A, was in a commercial dryer, which thankfully nobody said. That's good. We don't want to mix oily rags in heat. That probably won't be the best idea. Um, the other options were being an open, well-ventilated metal container, which is wrong. Hmm. The correct answer was C, in a covered metal container. I would have so, said underneath your pillow. Under your pillow? At yeah, night. Is that where you yeah. put your oily rags? That's where I put them. It's interesting. Mm. It's Spreading right so furnace. much. <laughs> um, that is not a best practice endorsed by this podcast. No, Or sorry. Andy or I. That's what Anna wants to do. Um, thoughts are my own. So with that, we did have a fair number of correct answers, one of which was Marina. Okay. Now, last time we said she had missed the fourth question in a row. Mm-hmm. She actually emailed after or while we were recording that episode. Oh, so wow. So with the correct answer, she's up to five in a row. 
Holy cow. And uh, nice. Mark is actually up to two in a row. So we do have a little bit of competition between Marina and Mark, although we need to take care of Marina because like five in a row, we need to do something cool. There. I mean, we need to get other prizes besides yes, she's t-shirts. probably tired of that shirt coming once a week. Yeah. yeah. No. So like a crew neck or we something. Need to, we need to do something. Maybe we'll cut the sleeves off or something. There you go. <laughs> Great idea. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. This week's question. All right. You ready? When using a hammer, you're familiar with a hammer? Certainly. <laughs> you know what that is? Okay. When using a hammer, you should never, A, hit another hammer, B, smash walnuts, or C, hammer nails over your head. So you've got a hammer. Which of these should you not do? Oh. Hit another hammer, smash walnuts, or hammer nails over your head. What? Email the podcast with the correct answer. Why are you confused? What I don't is, know. What's so I've, difficult about the that? The wording like, on that last yeah, answer just, was a little interesting. Hammering nails over your head. I got it. But we, we got there. It took me a minute, though. All right. To no one's surprise. <laughs> I'm going to let you go. That's a freebie, Andy. I'm just going to let that Appreciate one Appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I feel like the trivia question just jumped the shark. That was a weird one. Kind of want some walnuts now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can leave. We'll let ourselves out. That's fine. Uh that's it for today. <laughs> Please make sure to, again, like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach us at Jeff, Anna, Andy, or David, if you want. If you remember if you, if you remember him, guys. Even though he bailed on us. At IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Subscribe to our daily and weekly e-newsletters on our websites. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to the panel. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.